Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 86. Today, we're going to take an interesting journey through some of the recent news events that bear repeating because when they're told in the news, when people describe these things, they go, oh yeah, this is what happened and this is what was supposed to happen and you, and you just move on. And I keep hearing things from these two events in particular that we're going to talk about where I'm just like, wait, wait, stop. Why on earth did that happen? And then they move on to the next thing, right? And we, we hear a second thing that I just think, what on earth? Who organized this? Why does it work this way? And it just keeps happening over and over again. So we want to kind of walk you through that journey, looking at these news headlines and, uh, and reading some of the events that have happened. And the first one is dealing with Elon Musk and Twitter. Elon Musk, if you didn't hear, it's several weeks ago at this point. Uh, it will have been three or four weeks when this is published. Acquired 5%, or he, excuse me, he acquired 9.2% of Twitter's stock. And he failed to disclose that he had acquired 5% when he had acquired 5%. Apparently he bought, it seems like, he bought all the stock relatively once, and this was in mid-March, it was March 14th, I believe, that he acquired this. He announces it later in April, and according to the SEC, he, he actually only has 10 days to announce that he's acquired 5% or more. Or 5%, 5%. Again, this, this is so weird mm -hmm. to me that I'm not even sure <laughs> every time I talk about it or think about it, I have another question. Why on earth, Brad, does Elon Musk have to disclose when he gets 5% stock? I, I could get on the computer and I could buy some Twitter stock. It wouldn't even take long to organize with the way the internet websites are. If you make an account, you connect a bank account to it, and boom, you'd have, you could have stock in 20 minutes. Why does Elon Musk have to disclose it at 5%? You know, that's an excellent question, Dan. And uh, I'm going to uh, refer you over to the third person on our podcast who understands these things. And they're going to go ahead and, and give you an answer on all that information. <laughs> because because Is this cause I don't understand. I, I don't understand. I mean, we, you know, we talk about stock and we talk about companies and we talk about all of these logistical things. And... We've talked about it so often, and I don't mean us in this podcast, but I mean we as people talk about these things like they're normal, and so we just get used to it. But we don't actually think about the organizational structure that we're looking at. You know what I mean? And this yes. Elon Musk. Oh, these are the rules? Yeah, okay. exactly. He these are the rules, rules, and he broke the rules. But but why is that rule there is unclear. And, and you know, as we're looking into this, they talk about how, well, well the problem is is that he didn't disclose it right away. He waited a couple of weeks, which doesn't seem like a big deal. You're like, yeah, 10 days, three weeks, what's the difference in terms of disclosing it? He did disclose it. It's not like he stole money from anyone. And people say, well, the problem is, is that that 4% of stock he acquired after the 5% should have gone up in price because people knew that he was buying up stock. And I'm like, wait, what? You're saying that he doesn't have the right to purchase stock at the current market rate. It needs to be inflated 
when people have the knowledge that he's going to buy up the stock. And the argument, of course, is that, well, people should know what he knows, you know, that he's buying up stock and therefore they can adjust their prices accordingly. But there's no clear argument that that's the case. You know, it's kind of like how, uh, how you know, you have public companies and you have the people who run and own the companies who are in charge of it. And they're, mm -hmm. they are very limited and restricted rules about when they can buy and sell their own stock for their own company because of their insider knowledge. And if they're not careful, they can get accused of insider trading. And I'm like, well, of course it's insider trading. They run the company. They're going to know what's <laughs> going on and are going to have an advantage in terms of buying and selling stock. There's no way to get around that. And the SEC says, well, as long as they jump through this hoop and this hoop, it's totally legitimate. And if they don't, then now all of a sudden it's stealing. You know what I mean? It just seems incredibly arbitrary. And the whole process is incredibly arbitrary. Okay, so that's that's event one. He he passes five percent, and I, I like you. I'm just left kind of like, wait, okay, this is a this is a random threshold, completely arbitrary. He's supposed to announce that would then, in, as you said, inflate the price of the stock. People will go, oh, Elon Musk wants to buy a bunch. Well, I'll increase my selling price. Right, <laughs> the value of the stock will go up, and Elon will then have to pay more for each share beyond mm -hmm. that. Elon Musk happens to be able to buy enough stock for it to actually matter for the way the company runs runs things right um and this is why this was news at all elon buying twitter stock is a big deal and we're going to get into why as we talk about further events down this chain um but elon musk can buy such things because he is ridiculously wealthy and he is ridiculously wealthy because he can manage capital effectively so that you give him money and it becomes more money, right? You give him, uh, you let him run a company and that company becomes more profitable and it becomes more valuable. Um, and not by some arbitrary measurement, but by the fact that, uh, that people value the stock more, right? People are going to invest in it more. And we've, we've talked in detail about how Elon Musk's companies to some degree run on government subsidies. Um, and so I've, I've mixed feelings about his success. But I think even in a world where those where he he didn't engage in businesses that benefited from those, Elon Musk, if you know anything about him, his his work ethic is insane. Like the guy, the guy was going to be successful. I think you could put Elon Musk into virtually any system, um, and he would be near. You know, he he would mm -hmm. rise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he would rise, and that's precisely the kind of person you want directing capital in a market. We've decided. By putting this 5% disclosure that we want to prevent him as a society, we want Elon running less or make things. it at least more difficult for him to acquire make it more a more difficult share. for him. Yes. Yes. We want him to have, uh, make it more difficult for him to have more say in companies. That seems that's a choice mm -hmm. we made, right? As a, as a, that's all that doesn't have to be the case. That is the case. That's weird. Weird thing. Number one. So then. As we said, he acquired 9.2%, and he's offered a seat on the board. You can actually pull up the contract offered by Twitter on the SEC website, because something-something public trading company. Right? Again, again, it's just odd. 
So in that contract, it says specifically, there's a clause addressing Mr. Musk, which sounds really weird. <laughs> I've never heard him called Mr. Musk. <laughs> it really highlights the unfortunate last name here. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Musk will not be allowed as a shareholder and for 90 days thereafter, and it was a four-year term uh, as a board member, um, he would not be allowed to obtain more than 14.9% no, of the company. Was yeah, it two-year term? Oh, 2024. Right. What year is it? <laughs> I knew it was 2024, and for some reason, I'm still stuck in the 2020 presidential election cycle, apparently. <laughs> I only I only think in terms of four. To, 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 to be fair, politics. you know, many people are still stuck in 2020, so you're not alone there, Dan. <laughs> no, me and most of America. <laughs> in one form or another. So, all right, two-year term. Two-year term plus 90 days whenever whenever it ends. Um, he cannot acquire more than 14.9% of the company. Now, it's odd again that, that Twitter announced this and basically welcomed him to the board. And then it turned out he, he refused the position. <laughs> and people were like, clearly he bought Twitter, and he actually says this himself, he bought Twitter because he wants to influence Twitter. That's why he bought Twitter stock. He wants to be able to uh, change the direction of the company. He seems to be more oriented towards free speech uh, and, and allowing people to say things. And, and so profitability. And Twitter's profit got a long history of not being profitable, so there's that. <laughs> no, no, Twitter is not profitable. And, and as a side note, once he did disclose his 9.2% uh, ownership, the stock hit its highest point yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everyone was like, Elon's investing. Let me get in on that. <laughs> maybe there's, maybe this isn't a sinking ship or maybe this will make money mm -hmm. this year or mm -hmm. something. You know, what does he see mm -hmm. that we don't? So he gets offered a board choice. He declines. And, and the reason it seems is pretty clearly that clause that limits him to a 14.9% stake. Now we've talked about this and I, I can't find if this is a general thing. If board members are prevented from acquiring 15% of the company, that, that may be a, a common practice or a, even an SEC requirement or something, SEC requirement. But it's at least a particular clause in this contract. And Elon wanted more. And he, he, for whatever reason, decided a board position was not going to be influential enough. And he didn't want that limitation on buying stock. So he refused. And then he offers to straight up buy Twitter. He, he gives them a, a final and best offer, as he described it. He, uh, and he instructs them, he tells them, you would be foolish if you don't put this in front of the shareholders. So, which brings up Another strange thing. You have the board, which which I guess this isn't particularly strange. This is just how the organization of public companies works. You have the board, which runs the company. And then you have the uh, the shareholders who actually include, um, you know, a much larger group, everybody who holds shares. And the shareholders, of course, their, their influence is limited by the amount of shares they have. But the, the point is that a, a board is supposed to represent the shareholders and make wise financial decisions uh, that increase the profitability on behalf of the shareholders. Where this is a straight-up buyout, is what he was proposing, 
Um, the idea was the shareholders can directly make that choice. And there's no reason not to have them make it. Why have the board make a decision about the value of this, you know, decisions about what would make the stock valuable when you have a direct appraisal from Elon saying, I think it's worth this much, or I'm at least offering this much. Take it or leave it. Um, The board does not put it in front of the shareholders. They refuse the offer. And a variety of other interests um, there, it, Elon Musk was the largest single shareholder when he got to 9.2%. There were others that were around 1% and 2%. And they were generally large conglomerates like BlackRock. Those groups then bought more, seemingly to kind of box Elon out and to, to uh, maybe further inflate the price a little bit to, to make it harder for him, disincentivize him from getting more or limit him from acquiring uh, a certain amount, because if he gets 51%, he straight up can start deciding what the company does. He becomes the majority holder, and he can, at that point, direct things. Twitter then recently, just a, a, a day or two before, announced, uh, what's it called, a poison yeah. pill, Brad? What's the poison pill? So the, the poison pill is, is really weird, but so is all of this, so so what's new? Um, the poison pill goes into effect, has gone into effect, will last a year, and is triggered if any one person or company owns 15% or more of Twitter. And as soon as they do that, as soon as they reach the 15% threshold, the Twitter will start offering discounted stocks up to one share for each share each person currently owns besides the person who owns 15% at about half the normal rate. In other words, if you own 3% of the company, you can purchase an additional, you know, the equivalent number of shares that you currently own for half the price in order to increase the number of shares not owned by the person trying to take over the company in order to stop them from purchasing the company. And these are newly created newly shares, created right? shares which com- is which is really weird. Because they'll basically flood the market with discounted shares in order to stop him from acquiring 51%. Because then in order to acquire 51% and he can't get any discounted shares once he reaches that 15%, he now has to acquire at full price, you know, twice as many shares as he was going to have to acquire before. What's crazy about this is uh, poison pill. The poison is for the company. <laughs> you want to deflate the value of all of your shares, mm-hmm. double the number, you know, or or however many they would end up doing with yeah, this. Yeah, uh, it sounds like it sounds like it gives them an offer, and people can take it or leave it. But but, but it theoretically, the you could double the number of shares or close to it, besides the fifteen percent. Yes, yes, which is a kind of like you want to take over this group. What if I shoot this group in the head? <laughs> like, you know, it, it's odd. Mm-hmm. It's odd. But uh, but thus it is, I guess, if you really don't want someone to take it over. And this is not a standing thing. This is something they said uh, for now, temporarily for a, mm-hmm. a year, was it? Uh, there, we're, If this happens, then we will do this. If, if someone reaches this condition, we will trigger this. And the purpose of that is to stop him from doing a hostile takeover because – it doesn't apply to any deal he makes with the board. So if if the board agrees to have him buy the company, the poison pill doesn't go into effect. So the purpose of the poison pill is to stop him from taking it over 
without the board's consent. So it's to protect the yes, board. And it, Not necessarily this. And it's kind of like a yeah. stop at all yeah, costs. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, presumably, you'd, if if that happened and people buy those, they then have more shares than they want. They'd sell them off and different things. It would be it would be it would be a a serious hit to the value of Twitter mm-hmm. stock mm-hmm. value and may like and may even decrease you know the total value overall. Mm-hmm. It is not a shareholder's for first mm-hmm. choice, but the board is willing to defend its position at all costs here. So anyway, it, it this is also strange to me. It's like a it, we talk about. Remember when we talked about the Robin Hood? Uh, thing with GameStop and uh, and the shorting of the market and stuff. There are moments where the the veil of what is happening in corporate America and how stocks work and the trading, where it rips a little bit, right? You you get to see into the inside and the guts and go, what the heck is happening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? What is what is this? And this is this is some kind of semi takeover. He's at least threatening it. And there's these weird. Uh, we're getting a view of how some of the board stuff works and some of the arbitrary SEC rules and some of these other things. And it's just, it's something of a mess. Mm-hmm. Now, this story with Twitter and, and Elon are far from over. Mr. Musk, <laughs> far from over. Um, we'll see what happens. And I am curious if, if Elon will push it further. Um, he has He has money that he can throw around if he chooses to. Now, it's not just money sitting around in a box, as we've talked about before. You, he is not sitting on a stack of billions of dollars that he can throw mm-hmm. at this. To invest significantly in Twitter and to carry out his offer that he'd offered them to pay for some like forty-three tens billion of billions. It was like four, yeah, it was it was crazy amount of money to buy out Twitter. To do that, he would have to sell stock in his other companies, which can devalue his uh, own companies. Is, that's a dangerous game, right? Right, he's transferring the the weight of his say in his companies uh, to Twitter, and it's a, and it would affect the internal workings of his company. This is not someone pulling money out of a mattress, right? This is something entirely different. I, I'm trading the my influence here for my influence there. I think it's more valuable here in Twitter uh, for seemingly uh, idealist reasons, uh, rather than some kind of business investment. Though I think maybe he could make it profitable. But that's but that's besides the point. He stated openly that's not what's driving him. It's not money making. It's uh, it's that he thinks Twitter has become gone too far. But we'll continue to monitor that and see what its conclusion is. But in the meantime, it's just interesting to look at the the way this works in the SEC and the the percentage of it and the, the there's so many. I have so many questions about public companies versus private companies and how they work and why they work that way and how the, counterintuitive the often, it is. <laughs> yeah, the rules are often arbitrary and clearly so the second thing we want to talk about is amazon and the recent push towards unionization now there have been several places that have been uh several amazon warehouses that have been on the verge of unionization they've had votes um, and there's a process through you that you go through with the nlrb the national labor relations board in order to get to the point where you can have a formal vote, if which if you win, where all the workers vote that in, in that location, where if they win, the union wins, then there is a union established. And we were reading the news about this, and I'm I'm reading about how one happened first in Alabama and they lost. Um, and then there was one in Staten Island, New York, mm-hmm. where the where the 
<laughs> I say they lost as if there's only one group can <laughs> be where the uh, the people attempting to unionize lost and then in Staten Island they they won and then there have been following votes and 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 several other places you know it's it's kicked off as it's gotten attention it's it's become something of a fad and and people are organizing and pushing towards this again um and the first thing here that strikes me just like the 5% seemed random there but this one seems much more this is a much bigger deal. The arbitrary rules from government agencies is, it is what it is. It's very common. Um, but what struck me about it was there was a vote to unionize. <laughs> did, that, did that just, why on earth is there a vote? <laughs> if that doesn't strike you as weird, then you're not thinking, <laughs> then clearly we're not on the same page here. I feel like everyone should be like, stop, there's if a vote. Everyone listening is like, of course there's a vote. That's how unions work. You know, everyone knows that. Yeah, that that's how you decide. The, the company things, yeah. tries to, to, to quell the vote. The, the, the company tries to intimidate the union, the scrappy union fighting for the, for the, the little guys makes the vote happen. And then all your wildest dreams come true. If you can just let the vote happen and all the workers get a chance to vote for the union. And they're not intimidated. They're not scared or loved uh -huh. into, uh, <laughs> we were reading articles about, about, uh, they were talking about the tactics that a company uses to dissuade people from unionizing and, and they use both scare tactics and love tactics. <laughs> and I've just never heard that, that term used. Okay. So why is there a vote, Brad? The short answer is because of the National Labor and Relations Act of 1935, which fundamentally changed the way that unions work. Because the, the idea behind unions is that it, it allows for workers to organize into a group to then collectively bargain with a company. In other words, you know, there, there are 10 of us here working at, let's say, a warehouse, instead of each of us negotiating our wages and conditions with the company individually, we all get together and say, from now on, if you want to talk to us about our wages and compensation and, and these benefits, you have to talk to us as a group and agree on something for all of us. And, and that's the idea behind unions, is relatively a simple one. And there were unions prior to the National Labor and Relations Act in 1935. You know, you had unions who organized strikes and things like that. But the National Labor Relations Act fundamentally shifted how unions worked because now they had government protection. And how everyone perceives that today is, okay, well, that means now the National Labor Relations Act stops companies from attacking those unions, from using scare tactics, all those things we talked about. That's actually not what the NLRA does. It actually grants special privileges to unions above just protecting them from intimidation. So if you want to form a union, instead of just organizing, you know, instead of just banding together with people who are also interested, what you do is you get signatures or union cards from at least 30% of the organization's employees and you give those to the NLRB, which is the National Labor Relations Board that was created by the NLRA. You got to love the acronyms. <laughs> and then the NLRB actually comes in and conducts an official vote for that business. And if you get 51% of the vote, your union, then your union 
has the exclusive right to represent that body of workers. So in the case of this Amazon uh, warehouse in New York, they got, you know, some majority, around 60% of the vote, which means around 60% of the workers said they want to join the union and 40% said no. And now assuming that vote is confirmed by the NLRA and goes into goes into effect, what that means is that this new union will represent a hundred percent of the workers at this Staten Island warehouse. Not 60%, not just the ones who wanted to join, but everyone. And you may ask the question, well, at that point, is that really voluntary organization or is that something different? And the answer is, yeah, it's something different. It's still democratic. It's something different. But no, what you have is actually similar to how governments form, which is that once you get majority vote, you can actually force everyone else to be a part of your government. And yes, that's how the union is... works. It's not collective bargaining for those who are interested in joining the union. It's collective bargaining for everyone. Regardless of the mm-hmm. interest. This is this is the strain this is why it struck me when I I, I was under the impression I I'm apparently naive to such things. <laughs> I didn't know how unions worked within the US, you know, how they how the laws work that govern them and such. Um if I join if Brad and I go and we join some kind of club and uh, the only club that comes to mind is the Rotary Club. Nobody joins clubs anymore. <laughs> Wait, Nobody, apparently. If the only one I can come up with is You're the not Rotary. a member of the Rotary Club already? <laughs> I'm not. So the, the, the world is full of voluntary organizations. And those voluntary organizations um, have often have some kind of governing charter. And usually that charter operates through some kind of form of Robert's Rules of Order. You go and uh, and there's a chairperson and there's some kind of uh, organizational structure or some hierarchy and things are proposed and votes happen and that's how it functions. Now, it's completely voluntary and it functions in a democratic matter, manner, right? It has parliamentary procedures. And these parliamentary procedures are actually very effective for these kind of things. Robert's rules and... Uh, and such, and uh, what's the, is it Masons, that it's kind of a spinoff on it that I like better. These are really effective ways for having equal people, people who are equal in station. You know, you're not, you don't have some authority over me. I'm here because I feel like it. And as such, we have to negotiate everything and we're not going to get complete agreement, but we have to do something. And so you settle for majority rule and you have these rules to organize it and so on. The trick is I can leave. Mm-hmm. And no one compels me to attend this voluntary organization. This voluntary organization is fundamentally different from the unions Brad was just describing. They look similar. They are not. There is an absolutely crucial moral component that is different. One of them is you're forced to be a member. One of them is you're not. And that, that is not a minor thing. Mm-hmm. That changes everything. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between government and your local church. Right? Government in your local chess club, government in your local business. You know, the difference between voluntary and compulsory is not small. It's all the difference in the world. It's the difference between someone who said, who tries to persuade you to go to a party and someone who kidnaps mm-hmm. you. Right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a massive moral difference. And that's why the voting, when we saw like, wait, wait, they just have to get 51% of the vote 
to form a union that represents all of them. Okay, who pays for this union? Who's paying for this union? It represents all of them. Even if you voted against it. This is, this is compulsory. This is the force of government. And this is where it gets a little bit shady. And this is where some of the states... So how it works is there's, there have been amendments to the NLRA since it's been enacted. The, the most significant one was the Hartlett-Taft Act, and I may, may have gotten that wrong, but something like that, that passed in 1947, which shifted things a little bit and allowed some tweaks to how it's set up. So it's still very similar, but now it allows the existence of right-to-work states and we'll talk about those a little bit more, but before even getting into right-to-work states, what you have for those employees who choose, who don't want to be in the union, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but they still have to pay a portion of those dues. So Yes, yes. So under that amendment, you don't have to be in the union. You know, and, and if you work at that Amazon warehouse in New York, which is not a right-to-work state— if you choose not to join that union, then you still have to pay a portion of the dues and you're still represented by that union, but you don't pay all the dues and enjoy all the benefits that are unrelated to representation. You know, because there are other benefits that unions have depending on the union that they offer to their, you know, to their members and you're not a part of that, but you're still part of the compulsory representation and are still having yeah, compulsory – Fees. Yeah, the idea is you're getting the benefits, mm -hmm. so you have to pay for this. Mm -hmm. Which is why it resembles government in that way. <laughs> That's right. This is all your taxes are not optional. Yeah. <laughs> and this is this is a essentially a form of taxation. You're all part of this warehouse, and this benefits the warehouse, therefore you have to pay for it. And and as you said, they were they've distinguished a few things out of that. Um uh, but the things directly related to the, the collective bargaining and representation. Um, that stuff you do have to pay for, even if you voted against the union and didn't want to be a part of the union at all. This ties back to what Brad was saying earlier about the, this is, this is because part of winning this vote is the exclusive right to represent workers in this place. And that exclusivity is really, really important um, for understanding this. It is, it is a monopoly. For all intents and purposes. If I want someone else to represent me, I don't get a choice. I'm represented by, what, the 51% Yeah, yeah that 40% at Amazon can't choose a different union to represent them. They now no longer yeah, have a choice. I can't get someone private to represent me, which, which is always an option. I could go and Or represent someone. yourself. Or, or represent myself, even. That's right. I can't even represent myself. That is a legally granted monopoly. You were describing unions earlier, Brad. I can imagine what a union is. It's where the employees get together and they coordinate, right? They can choose to give, give money to a common pool that's used to pay for somebody to represent them who's going to do a better job than they're going to do it representing themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? That's a, if that's better for you, go for it. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is a 51% group voted. You get a 51% vote and you get a government-granted monopoly over representation that precludes any other 
form of representation for the individuals involved. And that under these laws, the, the union is using force in two ways. Number one, they're using the government force. The NLRB forces the employers to negotiate with that union. And there are strict requirements about what the employer has <laughs> yeah. to do. Like the employer has to meet with them in good faith, which stipulates things as strange as them having an open mind. Which is insane that that's codified in law <laughs> that you ha that that they that they are codifying a mindset because it's so nebulous, which leaves so much room for interpretation by the NLRB about whether or not the business is negotiating in good faith with an open mind or is just going through the motions. And as Dan pointed out earlier when we were talking about it, well, the obvious way you'd be able to tell they have an open mind is if they're making concessions. In other words, if you have an employer who's negotiating with a union and is refusing to budge, maybe they actually have a really good position and they don't feel the need to negotiate with this union. You know, they feel like they can get workers somewhere else. And therefore, even though they're considering all the facts, they're choosing not to give in to the union's demands. Or maybe the union's de demands are really exorbitant and over the top. The union can then go to the NLRB and say, hey, look, they talked to us but didn't concede on a single point. Clearly, they didn't come in good faith. Clearly, they don't have an open mindset and can you know, use the NLRB to then punish the corporation. That's the first instrument of force that the union is using. I don't know how you prove you have an open mind unless you're giving concessions. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think there's any other way, right? How on earth do you positively prove that I have an yeah, open mind? Yeah, that I've considered everything and I'm totally open to it, but then rejected it. Yeah, if, if you reject it, you don't have an open mind. The weight of that legal, of that, uh, legal statute is to force compromise mm -hmm. from the employer's. But then the second way that the unions are using government force is to force the employees, not the employers, the actual employees, to be a part of their union and be represented by the union. You know, so both in compensation and in exclusivity, that they can't use another union, they can't do any of these other things. And that's really important to differentiate because it doesn't have to be that way. If you didn't have the NLRA, you could have a situation where one warehouse, you know, which if it's an Amazon warehouse, could have thousands of employees, could have two or three or four or five different unions representing those employees and having the power to collectively bargain only for the employees who actually want it. Yeah, and by collectively bargain here, we don't mean a legal entity forcing them to the table to have an open mind. No. We mean we mean exactly what the word <laughs> seems like it should mean, which is where five people bargain as a group rather than as yeah, individuals. Or 600 and say, hey, or we'd like to negotiate with you. There's no law forcing you to negotiate with us. But if you don't negotiate with us, then all 600 of us are going to walk away from the table and may strike. And that's going to impact your operations. Yeah, it, it's just odd because I, looking into this, you stated those two differences very clearly. I think those two two forms of force. The idea of unions is is a good one. Like it's it's a it, maybe not in every circumstance, maybe not for everybody. But the principle behind it. But the principle behind it is intuitive and makes sense and useful and <laughs> and um and it's interesting that we live in a world where. Uh, where the two parties, you have a pro-union party and an anti-union party, mm -hmm. right? 
And I think most of that confusion comes about because unions are not just the idea that people should organize, workers should organize and, and bargain as a unit. That's not what unions are in the United States. Unions are a legal entity governed by the NLRA and the following legislation that modifies it, that establish monopolies of representation that force people to pay them dues. So Republicans came up with a solution to this problem called the Right to Work Act. And <laughs> I, should, I probably shouldn't be so dry in my tone. Uh, <laughs> if you could see my face, you could see that I'm smiling. Because the solution to this problem seems to be, what if unions were actually not these strictly legally defined things that impose on businesses and employees and force them in ways that are strange and, and require the government and, um, and distort various, uh, the interests of both the, the companies and the, uh, and the employees. Instead, what they said was, it's wrong to force someone to pay dues to an organization that they don't support, which is true. So, Instead of having to pay a portion of it, if you don't want to be a part of the union, we're going to say you don't have to pay any of it if you don't want to be a part of the union. But the union still gets exclusive rights. <laughs> it still gets the employee side, right? Employer side, excuse me, where it's forcing the business and has to negotiate with them. And it still is representing the entire warehouse. Which means that, it, that it's still stopping you from being represented by someone else. So you're not, yes, you're still not true. completely free, even as an employee. Yes. But it's also forced to argue on your behalf and you get to pay it nothing. <laughs> and so I'm reading a bunch of articles from people that are pro-labor, uh, which generally means you're pro, you, you probably would have signed on to FDR's bill here, the, uh, that we've been NLRA. discussing, the NLRA, that created the National Labor's Board. But these pro-labor people are arguing, wait, 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 this isn't fair. They're getting benefits, and they're not having to pay for mm -hmm. them. Now we got another instrument of force against the unions. Now you're forcing <laughs> the unions to represent people who aren't paying them. Which which makes is, sense, right? That makes sense that, that would be a problem. Because why would you pay for the union dues if you know you're going to be represented either way? Be like, okay, well, well I'm right. definitely not going to pay and just enjoy all the benefits. Sounds fantastic. Yes, you're going to get people who want the union, who like it as it is, who aren't going to pay mm -hmm. for it, who aren't going to contribute. The right to work laws, which now exist in 27 states, did not solve the problem. They put a Band-Aid solution that in some ways amplifies the problem. Mm -hmm. And just creates new distortions. Yes, it creates new problems, new distortions. Um, and this is, why why can't we ever strike laws from the books? <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I mean, why, why can't we ever be like, actually, that didn't work. Let's do something entirely different, mm -hmm. or let's not do that mm -hmm. at all, right? Um, I was reading a, various, you can find various interviews on this, because labor in... Europe and other countries looks very different. Uh, if you look at the numbers of people who were in unions in the U.S., in the private sector, it used to be uh, 30, 34%, uh, oh, I want to say, maybe it was 32, low 30s around the time that the NLRA was passed in 1935. Since then, it has plummeted. It is now single digits. The public sector, 
is around that same original number. It's I think it's 34% right now-ish, or 2020-ish. Um, and it's varied slightly, but it's been pretty steady. And the reason for this is that public sector unions are entirely governed by national laws, or at least, I guess, national public sector unions are entirely governed by national laws, uh, and that protects them to some degree. Um, and the state ones and things operate differently because you've changed one really important detail. The employer that the unions are negotiating with are legislators, ultimately. It's the legislators who are deciding the funding. It's the legislators who make laws about pay and things. They're, they're negotiating with other public officers, the school, you know, the teachers union is negotiating with the, the state school boards. And yeah, but like instead that. of but, government intervening between two private parties, it's now a negotiation between government and a private party, which, as we've talked about before, when we talked about unions and the, the port cities in California, how quickly problematic that becomes. Yes, there's actually no reason to refuse their demands because you actually want their political support. When you're not governed by profit motives, when you're not profiteering, you know, then you're like, oh, well, we'll give you anything. No problem. <laughs> All we care about is the good of the people. <laughs> See our last episode on profiteering for more information <coughs> on why that word is dumb. Um, yes, if you don't have a baseline, right, if your costs – if if you don't actually have to run a business where you have to meet certain cost expectations and you can just flip a switch and raise some more money um, in the form of taxes. Now, taxes are unpopular. It's not that easy, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very different mechanism. Then the incentives are different. But in the private sector, unions have been getting wrecked in the United States. They've, they've been as I said, 27 states have the right to work laws, but even that doesn't explain how you would go from 30 plus percent down to single digits or why it's so hard for, for people to, to do this. And I really think it's time for a rethinking of the labor laws as they are in the books, because as they are, you're not getting unions, which is ironic because it's meant to empower mm -hmm. unions. And the result has actually been that you're getting less and less unions across time. Mm -hmm. So if you're pro-labor, that's something seriously worth thinking about of, of why why it has to be done in this way and whether it's whether this is something to keep fighting for. Yeah, I mean there are some some legitimate questions here, some legitimate concerns. I mean, there are quite a few of them. I mean I mean my first question is is why did so many Amazon workers vote against this union? You know what I mean? The argument made by the unions every time is that, oh, well, it's intimidation and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like – Yes, yes. They don't know what's good yeah, for them. Yeah, exactly. What Ultimately, say. they don't know what's good good for them. But but I don't believe that. I I believe that that especially when the unions made serious efforts like in this, this New York case to explain what they're proposing and Amazon's making serious efforts on the other hand – that these workers have a fairly good idea of what they're getting in this vote. And the vote's being regulated by the NLRB, so they actually have a free opportunity to vote. It's anonymous. No, you know, Amazon's not going to know what they did. I think they're going – And can't retaliate. They can't retaliate. I think these people, at least – you have to give me that at least a significant number of those several thousand who voted against the union actually had a reason. And so the question is, is, is what are these reasons? And 
because because the argument has always been that unions are universally appreciated by the employees. You know what I mean? And clearly that's yes. that's Se- not the case. 75% of the United States resp- in, in a poll said that Amazon warehouses should unionize, that Amazon workers should unionize in these warehouses. That is that is an alarming popularity. Yeah, and that's and that's how unions always go is that in general people yes. always say we prefer unions. Pro union. But when there's yes. actually a vote, it's much closer to they're much closer to being on the fence about it. And that tells you something that when actually push comes to shove, unions aren't always the universal good. And I think part of that is because unions have become bloated. I mean, one of the things people are talking about with with this New York union is that it's a new up-and-coming union. It's not one of these large existing union companies. And part of it is because I think these huge bureaucracies for these huge unions get really expensive, which results in inexpensive dues that turn people off to wanting to join the union. You know, if you're if you're paying a, a significant percentage of your wages to this union on top of everything else that you're paying, that can that can be a huge setback, you know, and and, and can be devastating financially. And it may ruin any positive benefit from increased wages. You know, what's the point of getting a 10% pay bump if I'm paying 15% in fees? Right. And I can imagine so many ways in which a union could be helpful, even in small ways, um, if they were, you know, narrowly tailored and if they were, uh, if they were much more free to organize, change how they organize and how they function. And as it is, there is one legally recognized union Mm -hmm. Uh, type of union and it's uh and that i think that has done a serious disservice to the organization of labor ironically enough that that by passing by passing what was probably considered incredible legislation at the time to protect workers rights was how they would have framed it right we're guaranteeing workers the rights to unionize that ironically they may have done unions in general and thereby employees in general a serious disservice by limiting the forms and ways in which they could organize to uh, argue these, you know, to, to be representative before the employers. Um, you could have private firms that were, that are very effective at advocating for pay increase and other things that could organize and that could be worth paying for. And that would be, that'd be counter to these mm-hmm. laws, right? You could have, you could have all kinds of ways that this, that unions could have adjusted to the market and to changing times and to changing expectations and and have continued to be successful and play some role in the negotiating process. Instead, they've been almost stamped out in the private sector. And I think that's entirely due to not it's not because big businesses won and they have filled their employees with proper propaganda. Mm. I was saying there's good they have reasons for rejecting these unions. And it, and if unions could adjust, which they and and businesses, these evil big businesses, so called, have legitimate yeah. reasons for not wanting unions because of the because of these these arbitrary rules that are pro union as set up by the NLRA. Things like having these forced negotiations where they have to have an open mind, or they can get in trouble. <laughs> you know what I mean? These yes. Who would who would volunteer? Yeah, for that? exactly. What what kind of business is like? You know what we need. When we discuss your pay, we need a third party over there watching me 
and telling me if my mind is open <laughs> enough. <laughs> like, I think that would really help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, and that's the point that, uh, that you know, socialists and pro-labor people will make. They'll be like, no, you gotta, you got to force them. Otherwise, they won't negotiate. But I really think that you could find creative solutions to these problems if, if such solutions were – if we could get outside of the box of this, of this uh, legislation that is almost 100 years mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. It's been modified mm-hmm. since then. But the basic ideas were encapsulated in a, in generations ago and have been just rotting ever since. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> these kind of things, uh, when you need – for the same reason, a business that was established 70 years ago, if it didn't change and adapt, would be dead. Mm-hmm. The form of unions needs to change and adapt. Yeah, and as long as these laws are on the books, they really can't. And so what we they need can't. is an overhaul and something that's that's completely new and that's focused yeah. on protecting people's right to organize but not granting exclusivity and monopolies because that limits the ways they're able to organize and the kinds of things that they're looking to do. And it results in these very restricted versions. But instead, by instead of having some kind of legislation that did things like, you know, reasonable things like protecting against retaliation against employees organizing, you know, giving them some kind of framework in that sense, an actual protection, but instead letting them be free to organize in any way they want and businesses and unions to interact in any way they choose to, making it a voluntary association would definitely shift things. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.